Hi, Scott Walker here on You Can't Recall Courage. Thanks for joining this week on our podcast. And uh, it's been an amazing week. Uh, first off, uh, I just want to say something right off the bat. I'm not going to spend the whole time talking about this. I want to talk a good chunk about Act 10 and and the uh, another round of uh, Super Super Tuesday Part 2. But, but I do want to begin with the fact that uh, the president talked about this the other night. People across the spectrum only politically, but from every aspect of life, we're talking about the coronavirus. It is a global issue. It is an issue affecting people, uh, obviously here in the United States, but all over the world. It's something we can get through, but I think we've, we all have to acknowledge, no matter what your political persuasion, that this is a very, very serious issue. Uh, it's something that we can deal with if we work together on, set aside politics Government and the private sector, government at all levels, federal, state, local, uh, is going to have to work together with the private sector, uh, which really can help us going forward. And, and now is not the time to be playing politics on that. So I would just stress, I know the Centers for Disease Control, Control CDC, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, as well as uh, state and local agencies, have been talking about it. But just a really significant reminder to... Uh, people of all ages, uh, to uh, try and limit your exposure. If you feel sick, stay at home. Certainly uh, cover your, uh, uh, if you can wear a mask, uh, cover that up. Uh, make sure you're coughing or sneezing uh, into a Kleenex or a napkin or something of that sort. If you don't feel well, stay at home. Don't infect others. Don't go to work. Don't go to school. Don't go out in public. For all the rest of us, it's really important to wash hands. That's something we should be doing. It's something my mother, probably most moms, taught us to do as kids. I, I can remember not only as a kid, but when I worked at McDonald's, we used to uh, to wash our hands. We're told to, to say the alphabet, uh, to sing the alphabet, uh, which would be enough time. That would be about 20 seconds or more, which is what they're advising. You don't have to have just hand sanitizer. You can use simple soap and water. Uh, do that often. Don't touch your face. All these things are critically important towards uh, not passing uh, this on and not being infected. Infected. It's one of those things where um, it's really critically important. <coughs> Excuse me, my allergies. Not that, um, but the, uh, uh, the the bottom line is that there's a curve. Uh, I think it was important not only for the president, the vice president, others, uh, CDC officials, health care officials, but um, the NCAA tournament, the NBA, the National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, a lot of concerts and events around the country, certainly many of the colleges and universities, even schools, uh, looking at um, suspending activity. Uh, pretty wise move. Some people still claiming that's overreaction. I don't buy that. Uh, I, I think this is one of those where if you look at it, we can get through this. Uh, there are a significant number of people around the world have been affected, and about half of them uh, have recovered. Uh, there obviously are some critical cases where people have ended up uh, uh, dying, uh, oftentimes because of compromised immune uh, uh, or uh, uh, access to things like disease, uh, or excuse me, not disease, but diabetes, uh, other areas where there are certainly people who are suffering from a significant disease, I guess that's what I was getting to say, if someone's battling cancer or some other disease, uh, even more critically important for them to stay out of out of public. But but in general, 
as we've seen with others, this is something that people can recover from. I just talked to someone the other day on the phone uh, who had been very sick, had been tested positive for coronavirus and was recovering now. So we can do that. But I think what's critically important for people to know and acknowledge is that um, the, the timing of this is that we want to we want to uh, reduce the curve. Uh, as the CDC head was talking about the other day, you see this curve where there's a rapidly growing amount. Again, that's the wonders of compounded interaction. It doesn't just go one, two, three, four. It goes one, two, four, eight, 16 on down the line. And eventually, uh, if you're particularly for people, if they're out at massive gatherings of people, this can very easily uh, compound the amount of exposure that people have, thus leading to some, not all, but getting infected, which then can compound as well. We need to lower that curve because there's a line out there at which uh, the uh, reasonable rate of expectation for our healthcare systems, our hospitals, clinics, and other places to be able to treat people with any symptoms, not only coronavirus, but of other uh, diseases and ailments out there, we want to make sure we don't get above that. The the curve as it was headed uh, a few days ago was looking like if we didn't take more dramatic action, uh, it could actually get to the point where it would be above that level. That obviously would be extremely dangerous uh, because uh, it would limit people's access, uh, particularly in certain parts of the country, to effective health care within our hospitals, clinics, and other other places of healthcare delivery, uh, we need to get that down. And so some of these very, very dramatic actions being taken, I think, are a positive thing. I think to the extent that people, particularly, you know, hundreds of people or more, uh, to the extent that we cannot have people gathering in large assemblies, uh, that's another positive thing. There's a lot of these things that people can postpone until the future. Um, and uh, we can get through this together. Again, now is not the time for politics, but it is important uh, for people to take this seriously, uh, to follow the recommendations that the CDC and others are making. And uh, I think along the way, we're going to find a way to get this uh, rate of exposure and rate of infection down. And ultimately, we're going to have many, particularly in the private sector and scientists and others, who will find um, a way to cure this and a way to vaccinate for it going forward. Uh, having said that, and so I wasn't going to spend much time, but it's an important issue, and it's one everybody should be talking about, talking about with the facts. Uh, listen to the uh, listen to your doctor, listen to healthcare professionals, listen to people like the head of the CDC. Uh, don't get caught up in all the other hysteria um, about good, bad, or indifferent. A lot of people are trying to use this for other reasons. Just get the facts out and realize this is serious. Uh, we can get through this. We can deal with it. Uh, but we've got to focus in on the facts. And uh, certainly part of that is I, I'm hopeful that in the not-too-distant future we're going to get more tests because I think that's an area uh, where we have been failing in the United States. Other places have been more rapidly testing. We need to do that. And, uh, again, we need to be talking about this from a fact-based perspective. Uh, we come back. I want to talk about uh, the rest of the week, uh, although for most of us that's a good chunk of what we're talking about. But it was a big week in Wisconsin. Nine years ago this week, Act 10 was signed. I want to tell you a little bit more about that, plus a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of impact in terms of what Tuesday's election results meant uh, in the Democrat primaries and how it relates, actually, oddly enough, to the Republican primaries, which ties all together to Act 10. And what ultimately came out of that was a recall election uh, back in 2012. 
and how that relates to today's elections as well. I'll be right back. Hey, Scott Walker here, back on You Can't Recall Courage, our podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, it was a big week, uh, not just for the reasons we just talked about, but uh, this week marks nine years. Uh, On this week, back in March of 2011, I signed into law Act 10. Uh, That was, at the time, we called it the Budget Repair Bill. And remember, the the reason we had to do this in the first place is because uh, even before we got to the the state budget uh, that I had to put in place, and state budgets in Wisconsin go from um, July 1 in an odd-numbered year until June 30th on the following even-numbered uh, year. So it goes, you can say, uh, or excuse me, June 30th on the following odd-numbered year. So it's a two-year cycle, July 1 to June 30th, two years apart. It's a biennial budget. Actually, it's one of the things I encourage other states to do if they don't have it because it's easier to plan over a two-year cycle. But but what had happened was when I came in in January of 2011, we had about six months left on the last two-year budget uh, that Jim Doyle and the Democrats had put in place two years earlier, about a year and a half earlier, actually, from the time I took office. Uh, we, of course, flipped everything from Democrat to Republican in that November 2010 election. We came in and immediately... Uh, we inherited uh, not just a shortfall for the next budget. The the budget for the two years uh, looked at a structural gap of about $3.6 billion. But even before we got there, uh, we had a sizable gap in the, uh, in the budget. And because uh, Wisconsin, like every other state but Vermont, certainly some I've talked about before, it's why the federal government needs a balanced budget amendment in the U.S. Constitution, we have a legal requirement on the Wisconsin Constitution to have a balanced budget. And so by law, when there's a gap between revenues collected uh, and, uh, project, and, and expenditures as they're projected, um, when that gap gets uh, above a certain level, uh, the governor by, by law is required uh, to present a, a budget repair bill to the state legislature. Uh, we did that, and instead of just duct taping it through the next couple months until we were able to put together the the complete biennial budget. Uh, I looked at, with my team at the time, even starting in the transition before I was governor, and said, uh, you know, the choices we had were really not very good choices at all. You know, to take on the total budget gap that we had, we could have laid off 10 to 15,000 public employees. We could have raise taxes, although I said I wasn't going to, and I thought that would be devastating to the economy. Um, you know, when it came to public employees, I wanted to streamline uh, the process, but I didn't think you did it through random pink slips, and I thought that would be uh, equally as devastating to the economy. I wasn't going to cut billions of dollars to Medicaid, uh, even though there were some savings that we found over time. That was through reforms that put more able-bodied working-age adults to work. But if we just done it in the beginning, it would have really been a, a bad impact on senior citizens and people with disabilities and uh, particularly families and children living in poverty when it came to Medicaid. And so we didn't choose any of those options. And I remember, you know, the state of Wisconsin, every state's a little bit different. There are many similarities with budgets, but one of the big differences is some states – provide little or nothing to local governments. Other states like Wisconsin, uh, roughly two-thirds, close to two-thirds of the funding for all public schools in the state of Wisconsin 
come from state government, a good chunk of aid to local governments, to municipalities and counties uh, comes from state government as well. And so I knew if you weren't going to tackle those other issues, about the only thing left was to adjust how much aid went to local governments. Uh, and, of course, we weren't the first to do this. The, the, even before I was governor, when Democrats controlled the legislature and Jim Doyle, a Democrat, was governor, uh, we saw that because of the recession and reduced revenues, they had to cut aid to local governments. I know I was a county official at the time. We had to deal with that. I remember the stories about how school districts like the one in Milwaukee had to lay off uh, teachers, including, oddly enough, a young woman who was named the outstanding new English teacher of the year in the entire state. She was an employee in the Milwaukee public school system, and she got laid off. Why? Because the old system under union contracts said the last hired was the first fired, uh, the last in was the first out, even though she was one of the best new teachers in the state. Uh, all, all those things were things uh, that we knew from the past, but looking at this, I knew we could reduce aid to local governments as long as we gave them something to return. And that was adjusting uh, our health care and our retirement requirements. Uh, oddly enough, state and local governments uh, paid next to nothing. for uh, Their employees, I should say, paid next to nothing. In fact, uh, for retirement, the pension, uh, the employee contribution and the employer contribution both were made by the state. Uh, which is kind of a misnomer, um, we found in uh, particularly local school districts, not only did they have that for retirement, uh, but many school districts in the state paid nothing. Their employees paid nothing uh, when it came to uh, a portion of their health insurance premiums. And so what we looked at was uh, under this budget repair bill, as we set up for the next two-year budget, we put in place requirements that changed collective bargaining so that um, schools, local governments, and state government could actually require thing like, things like a match uh, for their pension contribution and could require reasonable uh, amounts uh, of that expectation from their employees for their health insurance. Uh, now, of course, they went crazy wild at the time, uh, first hundreds, then thousands. Then, then it wasn't just Wisconsin protesters. It was from across the country came in. I introduced the measure, uh, what's now Act 10, the budget repair bill, uh, on February 11th, by a month later, we had signed it into law. But in between time, there were as many as 100,000 protesters occupying our state capitol. Many of you might remember that from watching it on TV, hearing and reading about it as well. Uh, but the pushback wasn't just because of protests within the state. It was because of many of the national union bosses didn't want uh, it to happen in Wisconsin. Remember, Wisconsin was a a blue state that we temporarily made red. It hadn't gone Republican for president since 1984 when Ronald Reagan carried every state except for Minnesota, uh, his opponent's home state. It was a, a state where the progressive movement, the so-called progressive movement was started. It was uh, the state where AFSCME, the public employees union, began, where collective bar bargaining originated. This was ground zero, and so they knew if it could happen in Wisconsin, it could happen anywhere. And so they brought in massive amounts of protest, protesters from around the country, from Washington and New York and Nevada, New Jersey, and you name it. We know because they had their signs and banners and jackets with their logos on along the way as well. And 
uh, we knew of the incredible pushback. Um, I, I like to say it wasn't about unions. What we did was really about taking the power out of the hands of the big government union bosses, out of the hands of the big government special interest, and putting it firmly into the hands of the hardworking taxpayers and the people they duly elect to run their schools and their counties and municipalities and state governments as well. You see, for us, it was more than just budgetary savings, although there was big savings. A report from the MacGyver Institute this week, uh, a a free market-based think tank in Wisconsin, uh, puts the total savings of Act 10 at over $12 billion over the past nine years, over $12 billion. You know, they pointed to things like the fact that, you know, before 2011, most school districts in the state had to purchase their health insurance uh, through a company called WA Trust, which just happened to be a health insurance company created by the teachers union in Wisconsin. Well, yeah, the numbers were astronomical. They picked one in this report that shows that Kenosha Unified School District, that's a, a large-sized community in southeastern Wisconsin near the Illinois border. Kenosha's school district uh, saw the cost of their health insurance increase by $10 billion uh, up to the unbelievable amount of 70, excuse me, 10 million, billion would be a lot, $10 million up to the uh, the really high level of $70 million cost to them. But but thanks to Act 10, once we signed it, the school district was able to shop around for a better deal, and they picked one of the uh, carriers here in Wisconsin, United Healthcare. They came back with a bid of $41.8 million. That's a savings of almost $30 million in just one year, uh, for just one school district in the state of Wisconsin. We saw examples like that all across the state. You, you see the, the unions had just taken advantage of things before. And in these contracts, tremendous giveaways. And and uh, it, it was phenomenal. It, it also gave public employees the freedom to choose. You know, my sense was if many of these good, decent public servants was going to pay a little bit more for their health insurance and a little bit more for their retirement, although still far less than what most of their fellow citizens, most of their neighbors were paying. I remember my brother at the time telling me about how at church some of the people were complaining who worked in the public sector that I was making them pay more for health insurance and retirement. And at first people were, you know, were commiserated with them. They felt bad for them until a week or so passed. And my brother said they stopped talking about it. I said, well, what happened? I said, well, once many of the fellow uh, parishioners realized that many of these employees, including a number of employees who worked at school districts, were paying nothing for the health insurance. Uh, instead of being uh, sympathetic, they were upset. They, they couldn't believe it. You know, My brother, uh, who's a banquet manager, uh, said at the time that you know, he paid, I think, something like $700-plus a month for his health insurance payments and the little bit he could set aside in his 401k. And here they were complaining uh, being, about being asked to pay uh, something like $50 a paycheck in many instances uh, for their health insurance. Not exactly uh, the sort of thing that uh, people were going to be sympathetic for when they were paying far, far, far more than that. In fact, uh, most public employees even after Act 10, we're still paying far less in insurance uh, for the health, or insurance premiums for the health insurance plan uh, than uh, the typical uh, hardworking person was in the state of Wisconsin. So I saw that. We also knew that if we're going to ask them to pay more 
although again, as I've said, uh, still less comparable to what on average Wisconsinites were paying, but but we wanted to give them something in return. So we gave them the freedom to choose, meaning uh, what some call right to work for public employees eventually became true for everyone in the state, but it started out with public employees uh, because of these changes. And uh, we gave them the freedom to choose. For a teacher in Milwaukee, that might be as much as it's $1,500 that uh, they saved in state and local uh, union dues. And so it's just one of those were incredibly important. We saw the, the response was phenomenal. Uh, again, according to this report, it shows that once we changed the requirement, uh, about two-thirds of the members of the teachers union have, uh, have no longer are, are members. And we've seen similar numbers with AFSCME, the uh, public, the uh, public employees union for state, municipal, and county workers, uh, when given a choice, they, they realized they weren't getting any real benefit out of training or professional assistance. They were just taking their money and many times spending it on candidates uh, running for office that they didn't share their values with. All this was done um, on, uh, on about this time, nine years ago, the beginning of 2011. Little did we know what we were going to get into. We talked about it during the campaign that we were going to ask public employees to pay a little bit more for their retirement and a little bit more for their health insurance. We had no idea the kind of pushback that would occur, uh, the 100,000 protesters, the recall movement, everything else. But in the end, it's worked. Over $12 billion worth of savings. Our schools in Wisconsin are some of the best in the country with some of the highest graduation rates and some of the best scores, some of the best ATT scores for states where uh, every student is tested. Um, and we've been able to manage other things. Our pension continues to be 100% funded, number one in the nation. Our rainy day fund is 190 times bigger than we took office. We were able to cut the tax burden on the hardworking people of our state by by more than $13 billion uh, since 2011. Uh, And uh, we continue to head in the right direction. It's a good reminder that if it can happen in Wisconsin, a state that at best is purple and traditionally has been blue, it can happen anywhere in the country. I just want to finally say a big thank you to all the the lawmakers, uh, all the Republicans plus one independent, uh, who understood uh, that it was important to put the power back in the hands of the hardworking taxpayers. I particularly want to thank people like lawmakers like Scott Fitzgerald, Robin Voss, Jeff Fitzgerald, uh, Alberta Darling, Scott Souter, Mike Ellis, and many others who were leaders at the time who helped us get through and hold the hands of other state lawmakers who were feeling incredible pressure. In fact, one in particular went so far as to risk his job, quite literally, Dan Kapanke, a state senator from a district that he won, even though Barack Obama had carried it in 2008. Dan Kapanke is one of those folks who should go down in history as, as being uh, willing to think more about the next generation than just about the next election. All of us who worked together on that did that, but Dan was the one who I think risked as much as anyone else out there. And, and today he should feel good because... What he and what we did together uh, has paid off. It's paid off not only for the current generation, but it will pay off for generations to come. Uh, And in the recall, we saw that while the left started out motivated, the right woke up, and in the end, independents said, you know, I may not have done it exactly that same way. I may not agree with every step along the way, but in the end, it just seems right and fair to give this guy a chance to see how things work, 
two years later when I was up for re-election, we won because it did work. Our common sense conservative reforms worked. Uh, and I think it's a little bit of what we're seeing in states like Wisconsin elsewhere in the last month or two since impeachment. The left was worked up, the right woke up, and in the end, independents in states like mine are saying, you know, this was just a, a bunch of partisan nonsense. Uh, they may not always agree with every tweet and every comment, uh, but they have up until now like the results. And so uh, that'll be interesting to see. Uh, we saw it uh, in the last few weeks in terms of really unprecedented turnout for the president in the Republican primaries. We had little or no opposition. I saw that back in in 2012 when I had a recall. Most people forget there was a primary. Uh, one of the protesters actually got enough signatures to force a Republican primary. I won with about 98% of the vote. But what was more shocking was the Democrats had the real race. All the attention, all the focus was on the Democrat primary uh, for who ultimately would face off against me in the general election a month later. And uh, the irony was, even with all the TV ads, with all the turnout models, with all the attention and everything else that was going on, uh, the top two Democrats, who were the two most likely uh, to be uh, my ultimate opponent in, in the general election for the recall, the top two Democrats still, even with massive turnout, still scored fewer votes combined than I did in a primary that meant essentially nothing. And the reason for that is I believe that Republicans typically don't protest. Uh, they don't show up with signs and yell and shout. What they do is they vote. We saw that in the primary election a month before my recall election in 2012. We're seeing that now in places like New Hampshire, where President Trump's uh, turnout in the Republican primary was double what President Obama had eight years ago when he stood for re-election without any real opposition. We saw that in places like Texas, where not only did he far exceed President Obama's numbers, but where Donald Trump's numbers in the Republican primary were greater than Biden, Sanders, Bloomberg, and Warren combined. I think that's a good reminder that Republicans have had it, not just with the partisan impeachment, but with the media bias and the liberal hysteria out there. Those are interesting things to watch going forward. We'll keep talking about that in the weeks to come. Again, remember to wash your hands, uh, watch who you're in contact with, forget about shaking hands for a while, and if you're sick, stay home and talk to your doctor. Until next week, I'm Scott Walker. Keep fighting for freedom.